Hello everybody and welcome back to the Firearms Cafe. I'm your host Tony Brown. Today is Monday the 11th of May 2009. the show. Uh, on today's show, I want to talk about concealed carry and open carry. Uh, in part, I'll talk about my journey so far with concealed carry, and we'll talk about some of the questions that arise from carrying a firearm both concealed and openly. And these are going to be not only uh, legal issues, but some of the moral and ethical issues that can be faced uh, when you are carrying a gun. A little background as far as my time carrying concealed. I have not been carrying concealed for very long. It's actually just a few months over a year. But in that year, I've learned a lot, uh, not only about types of concealed carry for myself, uh, but also I've done a lot of uh, kind of soul searching and you know learned a few things about myself as a person. Here in Arizona, we've had concealed carry since I, I believe it was in 1994. And I think open carry has been around for a very long time, as long as I can remember. When I was much younger, my family moved to Arizona from Oklahoma. And we moved to Kingman which at the time was a very small town. Now, Kingman still isn't a teeming metropolis, and when we got there, it was much smaller than it is now. It, uh, it wasn't too long after we had moved there when a friend and I were riding the bus to school, 
and I saw a man who was sweeping the sidewalk in front of a store, and he had a gun on his hip. And I turned to my friend, and uh, I asked, is he a security guard or, or something like that? And the friend of mine said, no, he just works there. And then I asked, well, is, is it okay for him to carry a gun? Is he going to get in trouble for having it out in the open? And to which my friend said, well, here in Arizona, anybody can carry a gun as long as it's in a holster and, and you can see it. It just can't be covered up. And for us, that was pretty much at the end of the discussion. We, I think we started talking about something else. And I think I spoke with my dad about it a little later in the day, and he confirmed, yeah, that's true. You know, they're, they have open carry in Arizona and kind of told me what it is. Now, the reason that it, it wasn't really a great big deal was that I had come from a very gun-friendly state, and I had been around guns all my life, and not so much handguns, but lots of rifles and lots of shotguns. Uh, in fact, nine out of probably the ten people that we knew in Oklahoma had, at a minimum, at least one shotgun in their home. Now, back then, you were really the exception and not the rule if you didn't hunt or fish. And to a little bit of a lesser extent, it was it was the same way in Kingman. Uh, most of the people that uh, we knew had a firearm of some sort in Kingman as well. And, you know, if you as a kid were to say to an adult, uh, oh, you know, Carl and Stan and I... Uh, we went out shooting. They really wouldn't have, be, have been alarmed at all. In fact, probably about the only time that a red flag would have been raised uh, back then would have been if I had said something like that we had taken Tom and Eric shooting with us. And then, you know, they would have been pretty upset because we had taken some kids with some very diminished mental capacities. But, you know, other than that, no big deal. The reason I took us down memory lane there a little bit was to make the point that when concealed carry passed in Arizona, it wasn't that big a deal to me. Um, I had open carried on several occasions and had never had a problem. Uh, in fact, I can only recall one time when anyone even noticed that I was uh, carrying openly. And I was at an ATM. And a lady came up, and as she approached, I, you know, just kind of nodded and smiled to her in greeting, and she smiled back. And then I saw her eyes widen just a little bit when she saw that I was wearing a gun. Now, she didn't run back to her car, and she didn't lose control of her bowels, and she didn't have a heart attack. She just stood there and waited her turn, and, and that was pretty much the end of it. Now... You know, she may have been a little bit uneasy, but she certainly wasn't panicked by the mere sight of a gun. So getting back to when concealed carry passed here in Arizona, I um, pretty much had always carried a, uh, a sidearm in the truck, and it was pretty much always in there. And I also felt that if I wanted to, I could carry any time. It would just be in the open. Now the idea of concealed carry uh, back in 94 did have some appeal, um, but you know back then it, it wasn't super high uh, to do, uh, to be put on the to-do list so to speak. And 
it, it's excuse me, it's funny, but back then, I would have considered myself to be armed pretty much all the time. Uh, and, and looking back, I can now see the, how naive that that view was. Because a gun in the truck isn't going to do you much good when you're in a grocery store and the need is upon you. And I think it was, oh, maybe within the last year or so, there was an incident in a grocery store where a guy came in, he had a uh, shotgun with him, and he went in and just started shooting people up. Uh, so to say that, you know, when the antis and things like that say, well, that stuff doesn't happen very often, or how often is that going to happen? And it is true that it doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. And if an incident like that does happen, you better believe you're going to want to have a firearm with you. Now, if you if you listen to Mick McCart's show, uh, the Armed Citizen Podcast, and also to the guys at uh, the Gun Dudes, uh, especially with Mick's podcast, he focuses primarily on... Um, stories of legally armed citizens protecting themselves with their firearms, uh, be they handguns, shotguns, rifles, whatever. Um, and if you guys aren't listening to, the, to, to uh, Mick's show and to the guys over at the Gun Dudes, uh, you really should. Both of them are really good shows. One of the, the common themes in a lot of the stories where there's a home invasion is that a bad guy breaks in or forces their way in once the once the door is answered. Uh, you know, a lot of times in these stories, a struggle ensues. The victim is able to get away from the bad guy, um, or uh, the victim is not in immediate kind of physical contact. Uh, so they're not having a struggle with the criminal. Runs to the back bedroom and retrieves a firearm and is able to engage the criminal and uh, stop the threat. And here is where I see a couple of, uh, we'll call them maybe common mistakes, that many people in these stories seem to make over and over again. Number one is that it seems to me that they felt that once they were in their homes, that they were safe and that they were in control of their surroundings. And our homes are what many of us consider to be, you know, a haven from the outside world. It's a place where we can relax and be at ease. It's a place where many of us equate, you know, feelings of happiness and love. And we also have a feeling that, you know, this is our home and here we do things, you know, our way. When we are at home... It's a place where we say, if you know, if I want to sit around in my underpants watching old episodes of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, and I'm talking to you here, Carl. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Carl. Pay attention. You know, that's something that we can do. And because we can do what we want in our own homes, it does give us a sense of security and control. And this, unfortunately, is a, a false sense of security. I'm sure if you could ask those people who had been involved in a home invasion, did you feel safe in your home? I would think that just about every one of those people would answer, yes, I did. This isn't to say that you have to be paranoid and think that the Sword of Damocles is about to drop. Oh, uh, Stan, you need to explain what that means to Tom. 
But, you know, all kidding aside, we do need to understand that bad things can happen to us in our homes. A while back, and I, I can't remember what episode it was, but Ken over at the Urban Shooter had talked about having layers of security. Uh, in essence, you make yourself and your home a hardened target. And along those lines, I feel that one of the best things that you can do to your home is to have a security door installed for your front door. Uh, if someone were to ask me, you know, if I could only do one thing to the home, it would be to have a security door installed uh, because that becomes an effective barrier. When you think about all the interaction you have through that front door, 99.9% of the outside world is going to come to that front door from salesmen to uh, UPS guys to a city worker, meter readers. Uh, if there's a problem, they're going to come to the front door. Uh, it's going to go to the guy that leaves flyers you know, on your door, whoever it is. They're all going to come to that front door. And it's going to be very hard for somebody to beat that or to force open that locked security door. And it doesn't mean that it couldn't be done, but the average criminal or an opportunistic predator will move on to the next house. Uh, to illustrate my point, let me share a little story uh, that happened a while back. I was at a relative's house and a salesman came to the door. Uh, you know, subsequently they gave their pitch, was told no thanks, not interested, and, and the guy moved on. Now as she shut the door, my relative said, I'm glad I have this screen door here as a barrier. Now this screen door, it's just a cheap aluminum door. It's there uh, just to let you have maybe a breeze in while keeping the bugs out. And I told her, I said, that door's no barrier at all. I said, if that guy wanted to come in, he was going to come in. And I said, you wouldn't have been able to stop him. And she was a little taken aback by what I had said. And I told her, what you really need to get is a security door uh, like we have at our house. Now, will they do that or not? I don't know. Uh, I wish they would, but I think that they feel that for them, getting one would be unnecessary because they live in a uh, kind of a quiet neighborhood where not a lot happens. Uh, but again, that's kind of the point of having something like that is because it does give you at least an effective layer between you and the outside world. So moving on to the second common thing I see in these stories. A lot of those people not each and every one of them, but the majority, they did not have their firearm on them. Had they had that firearm on their person, their reaction time would have been much better, and more importantly, the number of options they had to deal with the situation would have gone up. Many people think it's silly to be armed at home or to have more than one person, when you are at home, be armed. But those same people, if they leave the home, well then, of course, it's a good idea if you are armed or if, if there are two of you, that both of you are armed. If in the case of a, a husband and wife or if more than one person lives in the home, both should be armed. 
so that if one person gets shot or incapacitated or the firearm malfunctions or runs out of ammunition, then the other person can continue to resist. Now, my friend Eric over at the Handgun Podcast talks about that from the time he gets up until the time he goes to bed, he's armed. And I'm the same way. Because when you need that firearm, you need it right then and right there. Obviously, this this would apply uh, to handguns, as it would not uh, really be practical to carry around a shotgun or rifle on your person all the time. And I'm not saying that you would have to carry concealed at home so that if your uh, concealed carry holster or setup isn't that comfortable, then just switch over to a comfortable hip holster. And I'm pretty sure that's, that is what uh, Justin and Daniel at the Gunfighter cast do when they get home. They go and they put on the Serpa because they love them some Serpa action. That's right, I know. You guys can pretend all you want that you don't got no Serpas, but I know you do. Some might say, well, that's great for, for you, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to be armed all the time at home. It's uncomfortable. It's heavy. Uh, you know, maybe I feel a little bit silly. And again, that's fine. But if you were to ask some of those same people in the stories that Mick talks about who did not have their firearm on their person, if they could magically go back in time and arm themselves from the start, I'm pretty sure you'd get a yes to that question. And if you want to look at it in another way, think of it like this. In a life-threatening situation, a gun in your hand is going to beat that gun on your hip. And then a gun on your hip will beat the gun that's on your nightstand. And the gun that's on your nightstand is going to beat the gun that's in your safe. And the gun that's in your safe beats the gun that's on the shelf of your local gun shop. My point is that the gun on your person gives you options that the gun in your room doesn't. So let's talk a little bit about the numbers of people who have their concealed carry permit. In Ari- and this will be in Arizona. I went to the uh, State Police Department website, which is Department of Public Safety or DPS, and they're the, the Highway Patrol or State Police, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and it is they who oversee the permits and they who are responsible for the background checks and have the fingerprints on file. And uh, if there are any problems, they're going to be the ones who would suspend your permit or, or may revoke it. Uh, and so this is from their site, and they have a little disclaimer on there when we talk about the numbers, and it said, These numbers reflect all transactions and the current status of permits, instructor certi- uh, certifications, and training organizations since the inception of the Concealed Carry Weapons Program in Arizona in 1994. Please note these numbers do not reflect changes such as a permit that was suspended and later reinstated. And at the time, this had been updated on May 1st of 2009. They are showing on their site the number of active permits are 124,597. The ones that have been suspended are uh, 1,534. The total number of ones that have been revoked 
are 967. And the, the, the permits are on their little chart there are broken down by uh, gender, age, and by race. And I think that in this chart they put white and Hispanic together. Um, and in looking at this chart, what I saw is some really interesting figures. By far, the majority of people that have permits are male and are either of white or Hispanic descent. And what I find interesting is uh, the age groups probably more than anything else. For men, the highest number of permits is in the 60 to 69 year old range at uh, 23,482. The next group is uh, the 50 to 59 at 22,184. So there isn't really that much of a difference in those two groups. And um, then the next group is age 40 to 49 is about 18,000 and it drops uh, 30 to 39, 16,000 and then 21 to uh, 29 drops down to 10,000 then from ages 70 to 79 you, again you're right around that 10,000 mark uh, and in the 80 year old and plus you still have almost 2,000 people so 19, uh, 1,982 people and for women the highest age range group age range group excuse me is that 50 to 59 their number of permits for that age group is 7,393. Then at the 40 to 49 age range, you drop down to basically 5,600. Eh, 5, we'll just round them up. Um, the next group is 60 to 69 at 5,400. Uh, then 30 to 39, um, they have a 3,700. 21 to 29 is 2,300. 70 to 79 is... Uh, 13 and 30, uh, let's see, 1,335, and in the 80-plus group, there's 110 uh, women that have permits. If we kind of look at it in my very unscientific way, um, what we see is, when looking at the numbers, is there are about three or four armed men to every one armed woman, and if we look at all the number of, of permits that the, the ratio is actually more that closer that four to one so that there's four armed men for every uh, one armed woman and this is where I'd, I'd really like to see some changes uh, made in our state I'd like to see that ratio come way up for the women but again I'd, I'd still like to see a lot more women involved not only in, in um, with concealed carry but as uh, instructors. We really need more women instructors and trainers. And again, not only for women who want a female instructor, but for males as well. Especially if you're coming through the very first time, let's say if you're, uh, you know, you're 45 years old, but you've never held a gun or shot a gun, sometimes it may be better to have a, a female instructor. And now I've had female trainers and instructors in the past and it's really nice because you don't get a lot of the kind of the bull crap that you can get uh, with some of the male instructors uh, because sometimes those guys are more interested in being a big shot than in teaching you what you need to know uh, and you, you just you don't tend to really get that with female instructors.
if you live in Arizona and you have your permit, you're a part of those numbers uh, like I am. But what this doesn't take into account is that people from other states who have permits may be carrying as well. So, and, and all those people would be law-abiding citizens. And what that means is, you know, when we look at the number of permits, we say, oh, this means that that's this many people who are armed in Arizona. But again, it doesn't take into account people that are coming down from Utah or uh, New Mexico or basically the way that I understand it is Arizona says that if your, if your state, if you're legal to carry in your state and you have a permit that's valid, we'll honor your permit in Arizona. The only thing where they say where they wouldn't would be that if, for whatever reason, let's say, and we'll just do a state at random, let's say Colorado. Let's say that in Colorado, you they let you get your concealed carry permit at age 20. Well, in Arizona, you have to be 21. So if somebody who was 20 years old and had a permit came into Arizona, they wouldn't be able to carry concealed because Arizona law says you have to be at least 21. Uh, but for the most part, Arizona is really gun-friendly and, like I said, honors just about every permit. And as we know, the more guns that are in the hands of law-abiding citizens, that means that there's going to be less crime. And one of the stats for Arizona was that rape and uh, murder for women went down by around, uh, depending on where you look, about 5 to 8% just from concealed carry. Uh, and so when you look at the numbers, it works out that basically 20 women would be alive and some 200 women would not be raped. Some of the antis would say that that's not very high numbers for the population. But if your mother or sister or wife or daughter is one of those 20 that doesn't get murdered or one of the 200 that aren't raped, then you're going to think that those you know, are pretty good numbers. In looking at some of the legal issues, and again, this would depend on your state and, and uh, what that state's rules are about where you can and can't carry either concealed or open or even if you have the option for open carry. Uh, but a couple of places that you can't carry in Arizona is basically any place that sells alcohol for consumption on the premises. You can't carry, of course, in a post office or at a school and there are others, but in Arizona, most places you can carry. If a business posts a sign that says no firearms and you go in anyway, and again, this is my understanding. From what I can tell, basically, it's if, if you go in to, let's say, a Sears, and they had a sign that said no firearms allowed, and if you were discovered to have one, they can ask you to leave. And then if you said, no, I don't have to leave, I'm not doing anything wrong, then they can have you charged with trespassing. Uh, but again, if it's concealed, which means nobody sees it, so nobody knows uh, that you have a firearm, you're not going to have a problem. And herein lies some of those ethical and, and, and moral issues. If you go into that store where they have posted a sign, you're not respecting their private property rights. Now, some would say, well, my right to life and the ability to defend myself trumps his private property rights. 
if you go into, uh, we'll just say like an outback steak place where they serve alcohol, do you leave your firearm in the car or do you take it in anyway with the understanding that you're not going to drink, but if something happens, you'd have a better chance of survival? If you were caught with it, you could actually face charges. Let's say you go into a small local pizza shop and you have your gun and you order your food and you sit down and you start to eat. And about halfway through the meal, you notice that there's a small fridge that has beer inside it. They're selling alcohol on the premises for consumption. Do you get up in the middle of your meal and take your gun out to the car or do you just finish your meal and leave? Because in all those places where you're not supposed to bring your gun with you, if you follow the rules, that doesn't mean that the criminals are going to follow those same rules. So let's say that a divorced father feels slighted, that he has not been invited to his kid's birthday party at the local uh, Chuck E. Cheese. And he comes in with a shotgun and kills a new husband and starts randomly shooting people. Are you in that moment in time, are you better off having disobeyed the law and having a firearm with you? Or are your chances of survival diminished because you followed the law and your gun is locked up in the car because in that restaurant they served alcohol? It's these type of situations where it becomes bigger than a state statute or a code in a book. And as a law-abiding person who carries a firearm, you want to follow the laws and rules. But at what point do you ask yourself, if by following the law, do I put myself or my family in harm's way? Do I relinquish the ability to defend myself? Now, the best way to remedy those type of problems is to get our state legislators to pass pro-rights laws. And here in Arizona, we have a bill which I'm, I'm really hoping makes it. It's Senate Bill 1113, so 1113. And it basically states that, and I'll, I'm reading here from the website, that firearms are permitted in certain restaurants if signs are not posted forbidding firearms and the person possessing the firearm doesn't consume alcohol. So basically, again, let's, let's go back to that example of the Outback or the uh, pizza place that serves beer. As long as they didn't post a sign that said uh, you can't bring a firearm in here, you could bring one in. And again, this would be con- I think this would concern concealed and maybe not open carry. Uh, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But I do agree with the position that Arizona Citizens Defense League, uh, of, of which I'm a member, has which is, and this is there from their site too, it says, Arizona Citizens Defense League supports the concept of restaurant carry and supports this bill. It needs some work, but it is a good start. And then they further go on to say, we'll attempt to work with the sponsor to secure needed amendments uh, during the legislative process. Um, Some of the problems are, again, that this bill, in my opinion, lets private property rights trump your and my rights to self-defense because if you have again an outback on one side of town 
that doesn't post a sign. You can have one on the other side of town that does, so it becomes random and kind of becomes a patchwork. Um, if you can safely carry in one, you should be able to uh, to safely carry in all, so it should be consistent. Personally, I feel we should be able to go into any restaurant or bar uh, as long as you don't consume, and and that's that's my feeling. If you're carrying a gun, you don't have any business drinking. I don't care if it's one drink. In my opinion, if you're gonna if you're gonna be armed, you don't drink alcohol while you're armed. The more that we can get things changed on a state level, the harder it will be for the federal government to come and say, uh, "Well, you have to change that because we don't like that." So let's talk about what I call the sheepdog issue. Most of us are familiar with, and most of you guys listening are going to be familiar with the sheepdog concept and in a nutshell it states that people fall into one of three categories if uh, basically a sheep a wolf or a sheepdog a sheep is a unaware and uninformed person who thinks that if something bad happens somebody will be there to help them a wolf is a criminal uh, a bad guy He's the one that preys on the sheep. And I should say he or she it would be the one that pay, prey on the sheep. Then you have the sheepdog. Uh, and that is a person who is not only aware of his surroundings and willingly takes responsibility for his own safety or her safety, but they are also willing to go to the aid of others that may be in need. Now, I consider myself to be a sheepdog, but I'm not a sheepdog for society at large. I'm a sheepdog for myself and my family. And this raises the question of, if I'm an armed citizen, what is my obligation or responsibility to others in need? What are the morals, what are the ethics of being an armed citizen? And these are issues that we need to not only think about, but we need to have the answers to those questions. Questions like, if I'm in a mall and I hear gunfire and screams, do I go investigate? If in that same situation, if my family is with me, do I stay with them? Do I try to make their position safe or get them to a place of relative safety? And then do I go investigate? Again, in that same scenario, if there was a way out, do we as a family get out and get to safety? And then do I go back in? Let's say if you're picking up your child from school and as you're driving away, you see a man with a shotgun go into the school building. Or you see that same man start to fire at a teacher on the playground. Do you drive away and take your child away from a killing field? Or do you go to a place not far away and is relatively safe and then get out of the car and go back? 
if your kid is three or four years old, do you leave them in the car by themselves? Let's say if you decided that you were going to go back. So if you went back and you got shot or killed and the situation turns into a two or three day standoff, would anyone think to look for you or would anybody think to look for your child who's now alone in the car with no food or no water? Have you talked to your wife or to your husband and said, if this happens, this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I will do if I'm alone. And this is what I'm going to do if we're together and if the kids are with us. Now, on the other side of the coin, you have to ask, well, what if it was your child at that school or mall, and you're at work or you're at home, and something like the situations we just talked about happens? Wouldn't you want somebody who was an armed citizen to try and intervene? And how would you feel if there were an active murderer who killed a member of your family and you found out that in the room there was an armed citizen who didn't act. And would you be eaten up by guilt if you were the armed citizen who didn't act in a situation like that and by dumb luck while others uh, you survived while others, men and women and children, did not? And how would your spouse and your children feel if you were to act or not act in some of the previous situations? And if you feel that you need to intervene in these type of situations, no matter what, are you prepared that by intervening you may make your spouse a widow and that your children may grow up without you as their father or mother? Now add up all that stuff and top it off with going to court because even though you were justified in a self-defense situation, the prosecutor's office has decided to charge you and you'll probably beat the charge, but it's going to cost you an arm and a leg and you're going to be smeared across the media. You may or may not be vilified. Um, your neighbors may look at you differently once all this stuff comes out. The members of your church may look at you differently. Even some of your own family members may look at you differently. Because you've gone from a theoretical realm into a real realm, so to speak. So maybe they don't want your kids and their kids to play anymore because they see you as dangerous. They see you as somebody who has crossed a line even though you were justified in doing it. Or on the reverse, you know, you may be seen or heralded as a hero. But these are all very real possibilities and uh, very real things that we need to be aware of as armed citizens.
Here's a young Tom being interviewed by a fellow classmate at the special school that he used to go to. I hope you guys enjoy. I like turtles. Back here live at the Waterfront Village with my friend the zombie. You're looking good. Just got an awesome face paint job. What do you think? I like turtles. Alright, you're a great zombie. Good times here at the Waterfront Village. Open for the next 11 days. I like turtles. And with that clip, we see why Tom was selected from the many applicants to be the co-host of the Gun Dudes. Well, we're back, and I'd like to take this time to thank everyone who gave their input on uh, shows 17 and 18 on the forums. I thought we had some real good discussions over there, and a lot of really good points were made. Uh, it's always good to get feedback and to interact with you guys. Uh, for those of you that sent emails... Thanks again for that, and as Mark says over on the Gun Rights Advocate podcast, uh, the emails really mean a lot to us. It's kind of our uh, paycheck, for lack of a better word. I'd like to share with you guys an email that I got from a gentleman named Pierre in France. Uh, he makes a lot of very good and valid points, and he draws the points that he makes, uh, illustrates that there are a lot of similarities uh, to gun rights struggles in Europe and that the uh, we're going through a lot of the same stuff. So I'm going to read uh, a few excerpts from his email. Um, he talks about, uh, and this will be a quote, uh, yes, uh, let's see, blah, 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 um, on our national TF1, French TV channel, uh, I could see quite a quite anti-gun two-minute long report made by a French reporter based in the U.S. who wanted to show the French viewers how bad the U.S. gun policy is. I suspect that he got his inspiration from the 2020 ABC show. Uh, he simply showed a gun show in Richmond, Virginia, and finally wrapped up his report by saying, the U.S. citizens can freely buy war firearms and keep up killing each other at a rate of 80 deaths per day. Of course, without qualifying the nature of these deaths, accidents, suicide, drug wars, Pierre goes on to ask, what kind of journalism is that? Do they get paid for this bad, superficial, cheap, easy work? It reminds me of the Michael Moore propaganda. No thinking, only commonplace prejudices, misleading platitude, always on the surface. I do believe it is vital to react because if the U.S. opinion and the U.S. media keep on promoting these anti-gun messages, our situation in Europe will get even worse. As you may know, bearing guns for self-defense in Europe is strictly forbidden. Unfortunately, our Constitution does not explicitly mention the concept of keeping and bearing arms. Our Constitution is supposed to protect human rights, though. Yet, isn't the right to defend oneself and one's family precisely a human right? In France, the answer is definitely no. Owning handguns, semi-auto, or service rifles for target shooting is still allowed, but submitted to very long waiting time, six months, medical checkup, extensive background check, excuse me, gun registration, complicated renewals every three years, etc., etc. But it is still possible. It is still legal. So I wanted to exercise my rights and succeeded in buying guns legally for sports shooting, I love my guns, revolvers, pistols, and rifles. 
On the contrary, buying hunting rifles is much easier, as this is a heritage from the French Revolution. In 1789, hunting practice was no longer a privilege for the nobles and royal family. Maybe this is the only good thing we inherited from this massacre. Nowadays, after passing a theoretical and practical examination, which tends to get harder to pass through, anybody can get his hunting license for life and buy a shotgun or rifle that are still registered, though, and keep them at home. France is the largest hunter's contingent among European countries, 1,300,000 hunters. We have our local NRA, which is called FNC, which is Federation Nationale de Chaucers, which uh, translates to National Hunters Federation, plus a political party devoted to the defense of our hunting rights, which is called Nature Chasse Pechette et Tradition, which translates to Wildlife Hunting, Fishing, and Traditions. Sadly, the number of shooters and hunters tends to decrease year after year, mainly because of the bad image of shooting sports mass media likes to dispatch and because of the very complicated and discouraging gun acquisition process. Now, Pierre further states in his email that he wants to basically educate himself and be able to counter uh, propaganda that he sees on uh, a European level when he's talking to his friends or family or workmates. Uh, and I, in looking and reading his email, I was really struck by a lot of the similarities. Now, fortunately for us right now, we don't have to go through all the the uh, hoops and all the red tape that he seems to have to go through. But we need to see this as a cautionary tale of what can happen to us if we're not on the ball, if we're not basically controlling the type of gun laws that are going to pass. And, and a lot of times people think of gun laws immediately in a negative, but we can have good gun laws. Prime examples of that are the Castle Doctrine, Concealed Carry, those type of things. But anyway, I thought that was a, uh, a very good email with very good points, and it should give us all something to think about. So, uh, Pierre, thanks again for writing in. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up for today. If you would like to contact me, please feel free to do so at firearmscafe at gmail.com or you can start a topic on the forums at gunrightsradio.com uh, and just uh, go to the Firearms Cafe section and start a new topic. In conclusion, if you are going to carry, just be aware of some of the challenges that are out there, not only to deal with uh, how you carry the gun or what you're going to carry it in as far as a holster, but some of the philosophical and moral and ethical issues as well that you may face. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and we'll save a seat for you at our table at the Firearms Cafe. Now this was a voicemail I think that Tom had sent to, well I'm not sure who he was sending it to, but he sent it to me by mistake, and even though he had tried to disguise his voice, uh, I still knew who it was from because it was from his personal email. Uh, it's kind of disturbing, but I thought you guys should hear it anyway. So here goes. 
I do just want to take a quick moment to point out for quite a while now, getting uh, stiff. Let's just say that I fully intend on doing Daniel at the Gunfighter cast, but it's all in good fun. Now, it, it sounds like he's in a car, maybe driving somewhere. And if that's the case, well, I, I, uh, I hope you listen to the show, Daniel. This is probably the only warning you're going to get. Uh, just be on the lookout for Tom.